Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. Leslie D. won free groceries and shop, play, win Monopoly at Safeway. Don't miss your chance with only three weeks left to play. Satisfy your thirst with Coca-Cola, bubbly or sparkling ice. Take a snack break with Sargento cheese or Ritz and serve up fun with Pop-Tarts. Increase your chances to win. Shop these bonus ticket items specially tagged in store. Download the Shop, Play, Win app to play today. No purchase necessary. See rules at www.shopplaywin.com. Hasbro is not a sponsor of this promotion. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to another edition of the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of May 25th, 2020. We hope you and your family had a relaxing Memorial Day weekend. I know many in Chicago took an opportunity to leave the city to go see family and friends in northwest, in northwest Indiana or out in the suburbs. Some of you even went to go golfing or had barbecues in your backyards that I saw on Twitter. So whatever you did, I hope it gave you guys a much needed break. As things are seemingly getting better in the United States, many industries are preparing to return. And one of those is professional sports. The NBA is planning on taking over Disney World to complete their season. The NHL might have a 24-team playoff to finish theirs, which is very interesting as the Blackhawks would make the playoffs. And Major League Baseball is inching closer to a plan to start their 2020 season. That's a topic we'll discuss the most in this episode while answering some of your questions in the end of the show during P.O. Sox. Joining me is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and the co-host of the podcast, it's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. I hope your household had a relaxing Memorial Day weekend. Yeah, it's been more or less fine. Been able to get out a little bit more safely. Um, one, of the, one of the curious things here is you know, when you're talking about leagues getting back in order and and, and some places uh, you know, being ahead of others, I'm, I'm struck by how big a difference it is from county to county in terms of just how comfortable people are, how... Uh, 
you know, maybe nonchalant people are about this and, and uh, just what challenges that's going to pose. Like I'm thinking I've gone to, you know, over the last couple of weeks, I've been to targets in Nashville and I've been to targets in the suburbs about like 30 minutes outside of Nashville suburbs, uh, or I would say in Nashville, it's like a 75% mask mm-hmm. rate uh, of, of non-employees wearing masks in the suburbs, about 25%, mm. um, you know, anecdotally. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm thinking like in, in Nashville, I went to a coffee shop today and they refused, uh, well, they didn't refuse service, but somebody came in without a mask and they asked them to uh, make a mobile order and wait outside. Whereas I was wearing a mask and I was able to order inside. Uh, but then, you know, we were out in the suburbs and there was a sports bar where there's patio seating and there's people crowded around outside waiting to get in and all the ta- there is no spacing between the tables. It was completely normal. Nobody wearing masks. And, uh, you know, it's going to be fascinating to see what this means and whether that means like, you know, whether some areas are inviting earlier than expected flare ups or whether they're, you know, it's not going to happen. You know, the, I think the path of this and and behavior of the uh, coronavirus has been so unpredictable to date that it's hard to pinpoint exactly what behavior is going to generate what results. But, uh, uh, you see some pockets of, of uh, the country and you just wonder if uh, any of these plans are going to be able to get off the ground. And then you go to other areas and you think like everybody's being responsible. It's going to be going to be OK and hard to tell uh, what means what. Yeah, I I don't want to slam for those people that live in rural areas. But my comment is that urban setting versus rural is completely different. And I think for those that live in the rural areas, look at the urban folks and ask, what's the big deal? Like, it's not a problem for me. Why does my life have to be impacted? Because Chicago's got a bad case of the coronavirus. Like, that's what we hear often in Illinois right Mm -hmm. now. Just because it's bad in Chicago doesn't mean I have to wear a mask out in public. And... Vice versa for those here in Chicago, look, especially on Twitter, I think there was a video on the from people in the Ozarks partying in a pool, everyone on top of each other. Like, you guys are idiots. Like, we live in a setting where everyone lives on top of each other, and we know how risky this is, and you guys are crazy, and you're just going to cause more problems. All I have to say to your point, Jim, is I don't – think there's any baseball team that's really set in a rural area so Mm -hmm. for those that live in the rural area questioning why the leagues are not coming back you're gonna have to look at it from the urban setting point of view because that's how the leagues are gonna have to view it because that's where they're based they're not based out in the boonies Uh, they're based right in the heart of the cities especially in chicago so yeah Lori lightfoot the mayor of chicago may have more say on what happens with the Cubs and White Sox to return than Governor J.B. Pritzker. And that may be a little bit odd uh, as far as the hierarchy in government, but I'm glad you, you, you pointed that out because I agree with you. It is very drastic on the way uh, that people are handling this different from rural areas compared to urban. Yeah, and even like suburban versus uh, urban in, in this case, but uh, yeah, just a, it's a yeah, it's a reminder where it's just a really big country. Yes, and uh, experiences are vastly different, and and you know in some cases there are you know there, there is you know I guess political partisan reasoning and message sending behind not wearing a mask or yeah, but some cases just you know it's the the danger is not that uh, 
present and, and, and not that sensed. And so, you know, just people living their lives, uh, you know, already socially distanced and there's nothing entirely wrong with that. So it, it's going to be tough to get on top of this for a national uh, organization like Major League Baseball. I think, uh, uh, you know, the, the economic part is one thing and then just the execution is a whole other thing. And uh, as we're seeing, as, as these restrictions are lessened, it's going to be tough to iron it out across the board. Now, the latest concerning Major League Baseball start in 2020, and there has been a lot of public discussion about the owners asking for additional pay cuts from the players, even a rumor suggesting of a revenue sharing model, which would be a de facto salary cap, and there's no way that the Players Association will accept that. We've heard through the national media that players won't approve that idea, and we've heard from the national media supposedly on how the owners are financially drowning during this time. All of these storylines were, let's call it, market research to test these ideas out before officially proposed to either party. And thanks to reporting from the Athletics, Ken Rosenthal and Evan Drellich, this is what Major League Baseball will be proposing to the Players Association on Tuesday, May 26th. And this comes from the report. In a scheduled meeting with the Players Association on Tuesday, the league plans to offer an alternative proposal leaving the union with a potential choice to hold the league to the prorated salaries the two sides negotiated in March or accommodate the owner's desire for a second, possibly percentage-based cut in some other fashion. The article does suggest that the Major League Baseball Players Association and their agents may recommend deferring some of the 2020 salary to next year, much like the Major League Baseball draft bonuses we'll see in a couple of weeks. But the report does state that that might not be a direction the owners will want to go because it simply just kicks the can down the road instead of addressing the payroll issue now. So, Jim, let's start with the confidence barometer. How confident are you in that the Owners and Employers Association can work out a financial agreement as quickly as they did about the safety concerns uh, last week for the 2020 season this upcoming week? Uh, I think it's going to be messier just because of the uh, very direct consequences this has to future bargaining uh, when it comes to the next CBA. The the health issues, that's, you know, um, yeah, obviously 67 pages and counting of safety protocol and, and uh, player health and everything like that. That's going to be um, expanded upon and, and going to be, you know, some people are going to be, see it as too severe. Some are, are going to see it as not enough. And, uh, but it's just a one-time thing that hopefully, you know, is a one-time thing and, and that there isn't a pandemic, uh, second coming down the road. But, uh, when it comes to the economic issues, like the, the revenue based agreement, that just seems like such a non-starter just because they have another CBA negotiation right around the corner in which they can't really give ground on that or else it's going to set a bad precedent for future negotiations. So it would strike me as messier. I, I think, uh, you know, the one thing I don't care for in this whole negotiation is just, you know, you have people like Mark Teixeira and Alex Rodriguez mm-hmm. and others saying, uh, you know, the players need to give ground and just nothing's been formally proposed to them yet. <laughs> just, uh, you know, the league has been floating these things out just to get an idea of how the union is going to respond and how uh, maybe to try to uh, lay some track for fans to take their side against the union and say that fans are being selfish when they haven't even done anything yet or players are being selfish for things they haven't done yet. But it, it strikes me as a case where, um, you know, just 
players have a right to get a formal proposal mulled over, say no, <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, just stake out their own end position and then, you know, d decide whether to give ground on that, whether to come up with their own counter proposal, whether it meets in the middle or whether it takes a completely different track. But to this point, you know, there hasn't been any formal negotiation yet. And it strikes me as unfair to, you know, make the players do something when they can't actually do anything based on having nothing to act upon. So, uh, I think it's going to be messy and I hope that, you know, everybody, media and fans alike allow it to be messy just because it is complicated and it does have ramifications for a much bigger thing next season, which could be far messier and far more, uh, you ha have far more, uh, you know, drastic consequences for the health of the game. And so I'd like to see this done right rather than done rashly, done poorly, or, or done in a way where the players have to re, you know, retrench and maybe take an even firmer position against the uh, league, which feels empowered to try to grab even more ground from the uh, MLBPA next time around. So it's, I think it's going to be complicated, but I just want everybody allowed to be complicated. And uh, hopefully there's enough money on the line for both sides to realize that, uh, you know, there is some ground to give and, and, and something can be reached because some baseball is better than none. I would love to go 12 years back in time and ask Alex, Alex Rodriguez and Mark Teixeira how they would feel. Uh, the 2008 versions of yeah. themselves about how the players must give ground. Yeah, it reminds me of... of <laughs> and the fight salaries. Yeah, it reminds me of like Hawk Harrelson uh, you know, as a broadcaster talking about how players, you know, how how any contracts beyond one year is asking for trouble. And I'd love to see him try to impose that in Hawk Harrelson, the player. Right. Yeah, Hawk Harrelson, the player, would totally agree, disagree uh, with Hawk Harrelson, the announcer. And, and the same thing, right? Mark Teixeira and Alex Rodriguez, the players, totally disagree uh, with the announcer version of themselves. It's just, uh, it's it's quite funny to me <laughs> on how their reactions are. And it's like, wait a second. Uh, yeah, so... We'll see on, uh, yeah, the, the ex-players are not doing the, the current players association any favors right now of trying to add pressure to them. And I don't know if it's necessarily forcing, but it is definitely peer pressure from ex-players for the players to give in to the owners and to get baseball back on track and back into our lives. Now, I mentioned the NBA and NHL in the opener. And it seems that those leagues, I mean, they have seasons to finish out, Jim. They have a little bit of the regular season, and they have the, the, the playoffs to, to try to play out for both of those leagues. If the NBA and NHL can finalize their deals to return, is that going to add more pressure to both the league and the Players Association in getting something done so they don't miss out on the boat while the captivating audience is watching basketball and hockey? Yeah, I think it will add pressure to both sides. Um, you know, speaking of ex-players, Tom Glavin uh, came out and talked about how players are basically always in an impossible position when it comes to fighting the public or, or uh, you know, trying to balance public perception with, you know, meeting their own interests. And, you know, really, when it comes to the whole history of the baseball labor movement, the public has never really taken their side. Fans are always content to, uh, you know, stick with 
the owners because theoretically the owners have the team and yeah you know, the, the team's interest in mind and lower player prices means the you know, greater probability of keeping favorites maybe in the fold even though that hasn't really worked out across history either but you know I, I think it's for other, for whatever reason there are a lot of ways that the league can make uh, their side sound more palatable to fans than players can and, and Tom Glavin says players just have to ignore that so I, I think uh, when it comes to this whole pressure uh, created by other leagues getting back into action, I can see that, you know, initially being applied to both sides and saying, well, yeah, the the players and the owners have to get, you know, both have to get in gear. It's a, uh, it's a problem on both sides and they're both in the wrong and they both have to figure out how to be in the right. And I wonder, you know, when, when reading what Tom Glavin said and, and you know, reading about what he's was probably right, that the players just have to look out for themselves and uh, hope that, uh, you know, fans will eventually come back and realize like, oh, the players are the ones who are were actually watching and who actually make the game fun, so right. we'll forgive them in the end. Um, if the players take that tack and, and, and take that to heart, then, uh, yeah, I could see the case where if an agreement isn't reached, um, you know, the players are the ones who have to take it on the nose initially and, uh, and, and you know, suffer being babies, overpaid, prima donnas, etc. But in the end, I could see it being a bigger problem for owners just because the league you know they are the league you know in terms of when we talk about this it's the league versus the players and if they're the only league that's theoretically should be in season and isn't able to get active i think that does speak to just how poorly the league uh you know it being mainly the owners and commissioner in this case played it now from the owner's perspective there's been a lot reported from the owner's perspective in the last couple of weeks about the loss of revenue impact to them for 2020. Are you buying their story that the losses this season of not having revenue generated from fans attending games is too great and it requires players to reduce their salaries even further than the agreed settlement in March where the salaries would have been prorated based on the number of games played in 2020? I don't really buy it. I, I could see maybe a couple cases, like maybe the Marlins, maybe the Royals, where you have recent ownership changes, where they where they have a bunch of debt going into it that they expect to, you know, pay off over the course of certain revenue projections. And you know, with the Marlins, they did some cost cutting in order to get on top of that. And when you're trying to forecast, you know, the the debt payments along with everything else, then maybe this loss of revenue actually does put them in the red and, and significantly so and, and forces them to have to uh, you know, make some tough decisions or, or absorb some losses or maybe even get some help from the league to get by. But you know, for the other teams, especially when you think of teams like the White Sox with such stable ownership, um, I don't think that they should have any problems getting by one year where they have to play without fans. And when you think about just, you know, how much money they've been making uh, with all, you know, all these TV deals, uh, you know, local cable deals, national uh, TV deals, uh, BAM technology, uh, you know, casino deals, yes, uh, all this non-game based revenue. And seeing that uh, player salaries have basically stagnated, even taking step backs in some metrics, 
it seems like there's a lot of money that's been made that previously uh, didn't have to be made in order, for, in order for owners to get by. And all of a sudden, um, you know, that's that money is, uh, you know, not, or I guess those gains are not there now. And so maybe uh, the, the the profits aren't quite there. Maybe they're actually taking a bit of a loss. But what happened to those massive profits in previous, year, previous years? And why are those not available in order to suffer a, a leaner year? Um, you would think with all these advantages that, you know, Major League Baseball has, especially when you consider the the antitrust exemption and especially like a lot of stadiums like with the White Sox where it's publicly financed and they're getting a great deal on rent that you'd think with all these advantages built in and with all these uh, uh, ways they're making increasing amounts of money but not having to pay more to players that you would think that there'd be some way you know some kind of nest egg uh, rainy day fund for them to be able to get by so that's what doesn't add up to me and if it's case like you know when you you know, we're talking about the airlines and other industries that have, uh, you know, not you know, previously, you know, I guess uh, bought back stock and everything like that. And, you know, didn't have their own rainy day fund to get by uh, mm-hmm. when it came to hard economic times and, you know, whether they should be bailed out. I think it's kind of a similar conversation here to where, you know, if you had these great years and the players didn't get it and the fans didn't get it because not like ticket prices are going down. And in the in the networks didn't get it because you know, they're paying more and more for games. Uh, where'd that money go and why don't they have it in order to, to survive uh, a year like this? That's what I don't, I don't get. And what uh, I think is a big problem when it comes to the whole revenue based uh, agreements uh, or, or trying to strike a revenue based agreement for players to get paid. And that's what I was trying to get at in the last podcast episode, especially when it comes to the major league baseball draft, we're going to know which teams have money and which teams don't. A team like the White Sox, which promised that they were not going to be furloughing employees, continue to pay out of benefits throughout the month of June, is great to hear. But as you mentioned, Jim, they don't pay rent. The White Sox are not paying rent right now. So they've got the money to not have to furlough. But then you got teams like Oakland, right? They missed their rent payment. Okay? Like... (laughs) If there's ever a case now why the athletics need to get out of Oakland, this is a pretty good case. Or they need, just need to find new owners. But as you mentioned with Kansas City and Miami, with new ownership groups, I could expect them to struggle. Then you're hearing stories out of Anaheim about the Angels. They're going to furlough all their scouts. So it's just the cross-checkers, the scouting director, and the general manager making their picks for the Major League Baseball draft. And after the draft, the remaining scouts are going to be furloughed. So then it's all on the front office to not only sign their five rounds of players, but also try to go out and sign any other additional players for $20,000. Like the Angels financially have made some huge investments in Mike Trout and Anthony Rendon. And now all of a sudden... They are cash-strapped, maybe even beyond cash-strapped. And the team that's been whining about being cash-strapped, the Chicago Cubs, their ownership saying that 70% of the revenue comes from game day operations. I'm sorry. If that was actually true, Jim, the Ricketts family is drowning right now financially, and they would need to sell the Chicago Cubs. Minor league baseball teams, game day revenues, 
are 70% of their revenue. Mm-hmm. It cannot be a professional sports team. And I wonder about the financial state of Major League Baseball. It's not major market versus small market because clearly there are small market teams or mid-market teams that financially are strong. Uh, and there are some large market teams that are not fan- financially strong. But I don't, I don't think every team is handling money well. And that, that's putting the league in a, in a tough spot. And the owners of these teams are now asking the players to take further payroll cuts because they're crying poor and they suddenly can't afford it. And you know what? They may not be able to, which raises a whole other plethora of questions about how financially strong is Major League Baseball after reporting record revenues the last three years. Yeah, uh, there are, uh, it might be something that forces a complete reckoning when it comes to team valuations and what teams have been Absolutely. going for. Uh, yeah, and I think that's something that uh, Major League Baseball is very wary of losing or, or very insistent on protecting. But it creates uh, you know, kind of loggerheads when it comes to negotiating with the union just because uh, you know, when it comes to the, the previous CBA agreements and seeing how things have worked against them when it comes to service time and uh, you know, the, the free agent freeze-outs and everything like that to where... You have, uh, you know, players promised money in, you know, prom- promised compensation to come in the form of free agency. And then that football is pulled away from them when they try to kick it. Uh, it, it seems like, you know, a revenue sharing agreement just seems like asking them, kick the football. We're not going to pull it this time. And, you know, based on just the, and this is, you know, gets back to the whole service time arguments, which we've had many, many times. And the idea of bargaining in, in good faith or conducting uh, agreements in good faith, executing them in good faith, to where if you don't, then it doesn't give the other side a reason to believe that you will going forward. And, you know, maybe if there was a, a case where uh, the, the kind of service time manipulation was a, um, you know, an exception rather than the rule and rather than the smart, you know, quote unquote, smart thing that teams did, uh, then, you know, perhaps it's the case where team uh, players will say, okay, we'll give you this one for uh, the health of the game and so on and so forth, because we've had a good working arrangement and this has all been mutually beneficial. But uh, when you have this, uh, this contentious relationship and uh, a case where the owners have been able to extract, extract, extract out of uh, some uh, advantageous situations in the current CBA to try to uh, renegotiate a previous negotiation to try to get more from the players there in advance of another CBA negotiation that was already going to be tough is just a lot to take on. So that's why... You know, when it comes to trying to forecast the likelihood of something getting done, it seems like there's so much money involved that something has to get done. But then you look at all the obstacles involved and uh, the, I want to say it's more than egos, but it's just the the history of the way uh, these sides have uh, conducted themselves or been, uh, uh, I guess, been taken advantage of when it comes to the players and just the the way the, the previous agreement has worked out and, and just seeing how much distrust there might be and maybe should be to where it's just hard to try to make up something on the fly because uh, players are really on guard. I think that a deal is going to get struck. I think the Players Association of the League will find common ground. I don't know what that common ground is going to be, but I do believe that they will find it and we will have Major League Baseball in 2020. 
But whatever deal they come, they agree to, Jim, not every player from the player side is going to agree with that deal. Very much like mm-hmm. the recent collective bargain agreement with the NFL. That was a very close vote. It was like 51 to 49% in favor of. Uh, and there were, clearly there were some NFL players that showed their frustration on social media on their surprise that that CBA got passed. But on the owner's side, I don't think every owner is going to be 100% backing whatever this common ground deal is. Mm-hmm. And I do think it's going to send some teams into a rebuild much faster or shock us on which teams have to go into a rebuild because they have to dramatically cut salaries in order to keep operating their business. And I go back to the Chicago Cubs, Jim. If that 70% is true from the Ricketts family, the Chicago Cubs need to go into rebuild immediately because they have way too much payroll to try to overcome. And again, just from a business perspective, yeah, you need to start trading Chris Bryant. You need to start moving Anthony Rizzo. You may want to start thinking about moving Javier Baez instead of signing him to a contract extension. Like you're going to have some teams just have to go into rebuild mode because they have to cut salary. And I know a lot of people have been asking the owners should open their books. I think that they should as well. But what are we going to find out if they open the books? How much money are the New York Yankees sharing to keep other Major League Baseball teams floating? You know, the same thing with the Red Sox, same thing with the Dodgers. How much of that money are they sharing with the other ball clubs and which teams have to take on money to stay in the black? Yeah, and that's it's going to be fascinating, too, when you mentioned this, you know, how owners can be divided. I think that's why, you know, the, the owners have been pretty much united over the last couple of CBA negotiations while the players have been fractured. There's been... Uh, things about like the, you know, whether it's been giving ground on uh, the draft and, and having hard slot values or the international cap uh, on spending and trying to avoid the draft and just the various uh, ways the players have been fractured. Uh, and while the uh, steroid testing is another way where um, the the owners have been able to gain some ground just because, uh, you know, players are very adamant about or at least some players are very adamant about, uh, you know, having a clean game. Oh, and, and, uh, so much so that they're, you know, willing to use that as something to bargain with. Uh, whereas some players, yeah, I imagine there are players who are interested in having clean game, but also don't want to have that seen as a weakness to exploit, uh, when it comes to negotiations. But, uh, the owners have been relatively united this whole time, but when you think back to 1994 and 1995, uh, a reason why uh, the players were able to ultimately prevail is because the owners were fractured uh, and, and that there were big markets, small markets, so ones that wanted a salary cap, ones that didn't, or ones that didn't feel it was that important. And uh, when it, you know, when, when the, you know, the, the court uh, issued an injunction against the league and prevented the replacement players from taking hold and, it just seemed like the uh, you know the walls kind of crumbled and uh, the 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 league had to give ground. And if there is this fracture among owners, uh, I, I think that uh, makes it more imperative for the players just to hold their ground and take all the bad PR, um, yeah, that they might get in the short term. Just because uh, you know playing the long game, it might be the case where uh, the owners just have you know, have to succumb to the pressure to get games of any kind just to get that revenue because they need any revenue they can get. Yeah, there may be teams 
that are totally cool playing a prorated part of their salary for 2020. We're going to play 82 games. Okay, if you're cool with me only paying you for 82 games instead of the 162-game contract I originally signed you for, I'm good with that, Team X, because I can afford that. But Team Z doesn't spend their money wisely and doesn't save it. And Team Z can't afford to do that because they're going to be in the red, far too in the red, to keep running their baseball operations as they normally do today. And, and that's that's why, Jim, I just uh, I agree with you. I, I think that the owners are going to be fractured here. And the story may be about on how the Players Association isn't coming to fair agreement with the owners, but the, some owners may be willing to do the prorated salary, but there's other teams that are asking for this additional payroll cut because they need it because they're not financially stable. And if you ask to open up the books, we're going to find out which teams are not financially stable. And boy, I think that would really shake fans' confidence in some teams. And it would be kind of an ugly mark on Major League Baseball and really raise some questions. I'm sure the NBA and the NFL would love for Major League Baseball to open up their books uh, to see just how financially stable the, the league totally is. So that's something to be paying attention to next week. But obviously caught up in all of this between the players and owners is the fans. And even if Major League Baseball does return in 2020, fans are going to be missing from the stadiums. And Jim, you wrote about this on Sox Machine this past week about how that missing element will impact the game's atmosphere. But also, how will fans try to stay emotionally connected to their teams and games when forced to watch on TV? We talked about the NBA and NHL possibly putting pressure on trying to get a deal done between the Players Association and the league. But if they return back on a TV, do you expect baseball to have eyeballs glued to their games if they do indeed return in July? I think they will have, you know, major initial <laughs> a success when it comes to ratings. Um, you know, perhaps uh, some records in some markets and especially the White Sox, given their relatively low ratings during the rebuild, I can see them you know, drawing two, three, four times uh, what their ratings were just because of the lack of alternatives and just the uh, just the scarcity that baseball has. Normally, when it comes to Major League Baseball, 162 games from late March to late September, early October, uh, you're never at the risk of missing a game. And uh, wherever you are, you can turn it on You know, between 7 and 10 p.m., see a game, except for maybe one day a week where you can't, and then maybe the other team in town is, or maybe ESPN has a game. You can always find a game, uh, and especially when it comes to, uh, you know, say, big markets or certain parts of the country where you have a lot of minor league options too, or a lot of you know good collegiate programs. It's just so easy to find a game, attend in person, watch it on TV. And not having that for a few months, I think, is going to be pretty big initially. Um, uh, you know, just being able to watch a game, be surprised by it. You're, you're after uh, watching so many historical games where you know the outcome, you know the reason why you're watching it, to have a game where everything's new and nobody knows what's going to happen, I think is going to be very refreshing. Uh, but yeah, like you said, and, and like I wrote about, just... I don't quite know, and 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 I say this, you know, either way. I could see fans being 
really hook the whole season just because they missed it so much and because of the lack of alternatives. Or I could see just like the lack of possibility of going to a game uh, where they just don't feel like uh, they're in it as much as they used to just because they don't have the... Uh, they're not surrounded by thousands of other like-minded people celebrating what they're celebrating. Yeah. I could see it where it just, if people are still largely watching from home, not going to bars, not going to games, not tailgating, it can be a bit flatter. And so maybe that initial excitement tails off and it's just more ho-hum pedestrian, uh, people paying three quarters attention by the end of the year when they'd be normally more invested. Yeah, the investment part is what I am most interested in because if the urban areas like Chicago start opening up a little bit more in July, I have a very hard time believing people are going to be sitting in their living rooms and watching more television, (laughs) right? Like Mm -hmm. cabin fever does exist and people will want to go out and just get out of the household because they've been stuck at the household for so long. They just, they just want to do something different. And just watching baseball is just really honestly more of the same on um, what we're currently doing right now, staying home and watching a lot of television. Mm-hmm. There will be a lot of excitement come in July. But I, I feel like, again, this is going to be some teams, the ratings are going to be great. And for other teams, it won't be. Because if your team sucks, okay, and they're not winning after August, it's NFL time. Like, mentally checked out, like in Chicago, if the Cubs or White Sox are not playing well and September rolls around, it's the Bears. Everyone's going to be thinking about the Chicago Bears in the city. And they've been moved on from the White Sox and Cubs, and I can see ratings really take a hit. So I'm not 100% sold that, oh, if baseball comes back, the ratings are going to be absolutely incredible. They might be at first. But I do... I, I. Man, if if they were playing games since May, it'd be a different story, right? If we're talking about games right now, Jim, yes, they would have a captivating audience because they would be the only live sports going on outside of NASCAR uh, and celebrity golf pairings. But that's not the case. And I have a feeling come July, baseball is going to be competing with the NBA, which that's going to be close to postseason time. And the wacky 24 playoff uh, team format the NHL is going to have. They're just going to be competing for a an audience uh, that was really eager to watch live sports. And then all of a sudden there's going to be a lot of options available all at the same time. Yeah, it's, it's one of the, uh, I think maybe Joe Sheehan was talking about it or some national baseball writer was talking about how, uh, it seemed a lot more special and 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 important what Major League Baseball is doing when they were the only game in town. And now if they're overshadowed by championships, uh, NBA and NHL, just because baseball doesn't really shine uh, when it comes to sports until the NBA is done, until the NHL is done. And then, you know, for a couple glorious months, it's baseball all the time. And right. you have, uh, you know, the standing starting to take shape and, uh, players getting fully healthy in gear, mid-season form for everything. And that's when baseball is really uh, full speed ahead. Everybody's invested. And, and that's kind of the, uh, I, I guess, just the peak of the baseball season for everybody. Like when it comes to just the attendance, school's out, uh, fans are there, uh, and just having no other options for sports. Um, but yeah, like we, 
what you're talking about when it came to people having cabin fever just reminds me of the conversations we've had many, 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 many times over the years when it comes to attendance shaming in the White Sox mm-hmm. and just how, you know, how much competition there is for people's dollar, for people's time when it comes to teams not doing that well or teams, uh, you know, intentionally not uh, spending what they could because of uh, rebuilding or just not wanting to invest uh in a flagging product that uh, you know, people don't want to spend the time and energy to go to a game or pay attention when there are so many other things available. And I think, you know, with this summer, there will be fewer things available, like concerts won't really be happening. And, you know, the there won't be, <laughs> I think a lot of sports leagues won't be happening when it comes to, like, say, softball leagues and travel ball for kids and everything like that. Uh, yeah, there won't be as many distractions, but people will want to be distracted in other ways just to be able to, do things and go places they haven't been able to go and see people they haven't been able to see. So there will be their their you know, their own built-in distractions and obstacles for baseball to still overcome. So th- I think that is very real. And baseball and teams can't take interest for granted just because they're back. I think they maybe could have a month ago, like you said, but you know, over the course of uh, you know June through August, if the other sports are going and if you know, you do have this imbalance between teams trying and teams not and teams willing to write the entire season off uh and and kind of start rebuilding or tanking or whatever have you it just it's going to be uh I, I think you're going to have an imbalance where some markets do well and some markets just uh call it a year and say like late july and again that may send some teams into a rebuild that we weren't expecting because they have to cut baseball operation expenses and that includes players so that's, that's something as far as the lasting impact of the coronavirus. And in 2020, that's something I'm going to be paying attention to in the upcoming months or even years because uh, I think it will have a lasting impact. Before we answer some of your questions in P.O. Sox, still sticking with as far as the fans' perspective, both the KBO and the Taiwan Baseball Leagues are going to start introducing fans back into games. Using the KBO, they're going to look at Three scales, 25% capacity, 33% capacity, and at most this season of the KBO, 50% capacity for their games. And I know that the Players Association, the owners seem to agree upon on the safety protocols of an upcoming season, Jim. And I asked our listeners on Twitter, do you think that Major League Baseball will have fans at any point in 2020? Because again, things seem to be getting better in the country. Uh, as far as numbers starting to go down a little bit with the coronavirus or the risk is not as great. Uh, could, if baseball started the year without fans, could they have fans in September if things start to progress better? On our poll, 82% said no. They don't think Major League Baseball will have fans at any games in 2020. Again, hurting baseball owners that were hoping to have some type of game day operations revenue for this upcoming season to reduce the impact that they're currently feeling financially. How about you, Jim? If things do keep progressing and it looks like that more and more cities and counties and states are opening up for business, if baseball does return in 2020, is there any chance at some point during that season that fans could be allowed back? 
I could see some markets wanting to give it a shot. You know, maybe a, a couple uh, where they feel like they have a handle on it, where their areas aren't as exposed or as stricken or they're further past it than others and they want to try to get some fans into the stadium. But I wonder when it comes to this agreement, whether fans are part of it because you know that's part of the thing when it came to trying to get the season off the ground the bubble in Arizona and just trying to limit the exposure of uh teams uh players and their employees both uh players and non-players and if that's a big part of the agreement uh just trying to uh limit exposure and and try to keep players as contained as possible I would think you wouldn't want fans involved, uh, you know, jeopardizing that agreement um, just because if you have players, meet, uh, if you have fans coming in, meeting with ticket takers, usher, concessionaires who meet with other employees, who meet with other employees, who meet with other employees, and all of a sudden it's down to the clubhouse. I would think that would be a major sticking point when it came to trying to reintroduce fans back into the equation. So that might be one case where I think it might get too complicated for the league to take on, especially if they think that's going to be a wash um, between letting players in and then having the staffing and concessions and everything like that to actually make it worth it uh, just might not be the payoff. I think, uh, I want to say as Lawrence Holmes had a poll asking whether, you know, uh, a few months from now, if, if somebody wanted to go to, or somebody offered you free tickets to go to like a 20,000 person event uh, where there was spacing, you know, not completely crowded, but just like a, a lot of people, and even if you had some precautions, would you want to go? And most people said no. I, I think that's something that, uh, especially you know, teams in you know, mostly urban areas have to contend with, is just having trying to win fans over to want to go in the first place. So it strikes me as a lot of obstacles to try to get fans involved. So I think if, if it's all or nothing when it comes to uh, you know, having markets get involved and, and draw fans in, I would say no, but... I could see a couple markets trying it, especially if they think they can contain it and uh, they can, you know, they don't have the, the local problem and they feel like they can keep the fan part separate enough from the, from you know, the, the employees who have to go in the tunnels and the clubhouses and so forth. Well, you guys had questions for us, so let's answer those next as we take a quick break on the Sox Machine podcast to answer your questions in P.O. Sox. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. And now, Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Check out our amazing offers on internet and learn about the latest breakthrough from Xfinity. Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. That's more than enough speed to power all your devices and then some. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible x gateway. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. At ADP, we work with more than 860,000 companies worldwide. That gives us a pretty good idea of how to help businesses grow stronger. Whether it's through data insights that help you make informed decisions about building a team that works better as a team. Or by keeping you ahead of thousands of changing regulations so you can keep ahead of everything else. Like building that better team. Grow stronger with ADP. HR talent, time, and payroll. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. 
Check out our amazing offers on Xfinity Internet. You'll get fast speed and Wi-Fi coverage you can count on. Plus, get advanced security free with the XFi Gateway, so you can keep the connected devices in your home protected from network threats. Just log in and activate through the Xfinity app. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Sox. We submitted your questions to us via Twitter. Follow us on Twitter at Sox Machine or helping support the site and the show by becoming a friend at patreon.com slash Sox Machine. And Jim, our first question comes from Alex Root. And this is a timely question as this is a popular target for the July international signing period if it actually happens in July. And Alex's question. Hey, guys, I have a question about Oscar Colas. A couple months ago, Eric Loggenhagen was asked in his chat about what he thought about Colas. And Eric responded with he believes that Coloss will have a future value of a 35 grade and quote, he'll be on the list of whoever signs him in the honorable mentions, had a director comp him to a lot of the DH only type quadruple A guys. So if Coloss is truly seen as another quadruple A DH bat, the White Sox seem to love. Why should I be excited if he signs with the White Sox? Well, I think uh, to start, I would be excited just because it'd be money the White Sox were spending on the international market rather than trading away to other teams. So there's that. Uh, with Coloss, I think it's you know uh, it, it's good to bring up Long and Hagen's assessment just because you know he's not a slam dunk and 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 other writers like MLB.com, I think it was Jesse Sanchez who said that you know he's not quite on the grade of uh, Luis Robert and Shohei Otani and others who have come out to great acclaim. And even like when you think about, uh, you know, like Luis Robert coming out, he had some doubters, uh, you know, whether his swing would work, whether he is just more of a, a workout freak or a showcase freak who uh, uh, you had some immense tools, but just had uh, didn't have the skills to actually turn those physical talents into production. Um, they, you know, Luis Robert, Jose Abreu, too, had some some he had some low assessments. He had some high assessments. And the White Sox, generally speaking, when it comes to investing in Cuba and how they've tracked talent, have been generally on the winning side of each of these arguments. I think maybe Diane Viciato was the one that didn't work out. And uh, that just was a matter of just he uh, wasn't good enough to play third base and didn't have the uh, discipline or bat speed to pull balls in the air. And uh, he had some he had some talent that was enough to thrive in triple a and and make it to the majors and get some extended playing time ultimately he's now crushing it in japan which i think might be uh maybe where long and hagen sees coloss you know in that kind of uh, quadruple a masher type um Vicieto fits that bill but uh the white Sox generally have been good about uh what they think about cuban talent so that's one thing where if the White Sox pursued him, I would say to give them some benefit of the doubt and see how it plays out. So I think given that he's a, uh, you know, he can throw uh, reportedly up to 95 miles per hour with his uh, left arm, that would be a one uh, thing that differentiates him from the rest of the DH clut. And also the fact that he's played outfield in Japan, whereas you look at the other first base DH types like Zach Collins and Yermin Mercedes and Gavin Sheets, where they can't play the outfield. 
And so Klaus would have a step up there. Um, so that's another case where I'd give him that uh, nod. But it is worth keeping that in mind. I've seen a lot of excitement when it comes to uh, Klaus and yeah, with the White Sox, uh, with their Cuban ties and, and uh, yeah, just the natural connections that are drawn between a highly touted Cuban uh, player coming out to the market and the White Sox being front runners and uh, maybe even being a, a landing spot of destiny for him. I can see that being the case and, and why people get excited, but I think it's worth keeping in mind that uh, you know, it might not be the case where he's not all it's cracked up to be. And if the White Sox don't get him, it's not necessarily a failing. You know, it might just be something where they didn't think the talent was worth it or uh, you know, Klaus had a, a more appeal elsewhere or had uh, you know, another spot had more appeal to him. But um, you know, like, like when it comes to talking about the MLB, MLBPA negotiations, I'm willing to let it play out just because I think the White Sox have earned uh, enough credibility in this regard, how they view Cuban talent and how they pursue it when they believe in the talent to where if it didn't come to fruition, uh, that the White Sox would have their reasons. Oscar Colas signing would be right there on the enthusiasm level for me when they signed Yobert Sanchez. Okay. That's how I would feel. Uh, I would give it a nod just because, uh, or I would give uh, Colossus the nod. I would put it on a tier, maybe a tier too higher just because he's three years younger. How old is Yobert Sanchez? I'm going to check now. I think they signed him when he's 23. And Colossus is only 20? 20 or 21. Let me see what their ages are now. I know he's age 20 season last year, but let me see. Okay. I thought Colossus was the older one. Gilbert Sanchez is 23, turned 23 in March. So there's that. Okay. And, and Oscar Kloss, let's... He's 21. Uh, his birthday is in September. So the next time he's... If the White Sox signed him, the next time he's playing baseball within the White Sox organization, he's going to be at 22 years old. Yeah, so he's uh, two years younger. Got it. Okay. Like... Yes, it's exciting that the White Sox are spending some serious cash still in the international market after having to to wait because they gave Luis Robert so much money. And it was totally worth the investment, and they even made a further investment to keep Luis Robert in Chicago for a very, very long time. But I'm not expecting Coloss to be, oh, he's going to be a future mainstay for the Chicago White Sox. That's, I don't have that same enthusiasm level. For Oscar Colas yeah. and Gilbert Sanchez. But I think with the spending capped and with, you know, the the kind of uh, uh, limits in place that were not there when the White Sox had to pursue Robert and go well over, <laughs> blow out their budget in order to sign him. Uh, the the risk is so small. Like if the White Sox, you know, they, they really haven't proven themselves to be like top spenders in other markets like the Dominican and so forth, where they're competing for, you know, Baseball America's top 10 list of July 2 prospects that if they go all out for a 21 year old with some notable tools um, that has been able to produce in uh, Japan and you know, has some talent that uh, I would not be, yeah, I'd be excited. Like, yeah, I wouldn't be Robert thrilled because I thought they made all the sense in the world. Same thing with Jose Abreu. Uh, you know, I was all for them, you know, getting the job done, whatever it took in this case, uh, whatever it takes is it has a fur, you know, has a hard cap on it that uh, we know before the uh, signing period starts, and uh, there's really no way to go past it. So it's a uh, it's pretty low risk when it comes to pursuing him, especially if the White Sox don't really have you know 
other big plans in mind. And, and seeing the way they've traded away international spending money, I, I'd just be happy to see them spend it all. Well, Alex, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Azinrek. And Azinrek is asking, Jim, how has writing about the 1995 White Sox affected how you see what the club will do in the next couple of years? It hasn't really affected that. And I am and I haven't really been examining the 1995 White Sox for that uh, purpose. I think it's been you know more for a couple of things. One is to kind of note how much the game has changed. Like when you look at the walk numbers for pitchers, and I'll be writing about a couple of pitchers in coming weeks that just... You look at their walk numbers and you think like, how did we expect this guy to have future success? Or how did, this, how did he end up on the roster for uh, as long as he did based on how many guys he was walking? So there's that. There's also like the idea of just the conventional wisdom at the time. Like when the White, you know, when I wrote about the Chris Sabo post and the John Cruck post and how the White Sox looked at their DH as their cleanup hitter behind Frank Thomas. They had Robin Ventura there who was left-handed bats, power bat. Uh, 30 homer bat who, you know, with a good batting eye that could theoretically hit behind uh, Thomas. Uh, but for whatever reason, they wanted a cleanup hitter. And Julio Franco did that job very well in the year he was with the White Sox. And they just said, we need to replace that number four hitter. And so we're going to have Chris Sabo, who hasn't uh, been a, a real heart of the order major league hitter for a couple of years. And we're just going to plug him into the fourth spot behind the best hitter in the world. And uh, we're not going to think twice about it. That, that's really bizarre to me. So there's that. Um, the other thing is just uh, uh, how quickly uh, or how, you know, just how quickly the White Sox squandered a potential heyday uh, and, and, and a potential golden age in franchise history. And, you know, with the, Current labor talks going on with a bigger CBA talks coming up next year and with Jerry Reinsdorf's rich history of being on the wrong side of labor issues or being on the, uh, you know, having a very traceable source of owner aggression towards the union uh, that, you know, it's just a reminder how much I would like him to sit this one out and just play, play nice. <laughs> at least, you know, even if he's not going to be like, you know, champion of the union, at least not be the guy driving the bus. Yeah, just if he, even if he's going along for the ride, it just I don't want him to be the idea guy. Uh, just <laughs> that's really my 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 big concern with this. But uh, when it, I guess if you want to look at it glass half full, the other reason I'm writing about this is with a partial season and with a delayed season interruptions and and players um, you know coming into the baseball season various shapes of ready <laughs> and uh, and 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 teams and different sources of stress, either financially or uh, just when it comes to player health and everything like that, that uh, things can go uh, belly up very quickly. And with the White Sox, they, they're basically, their season was over in 10 days, basically how poorly they started, how well the Indians started, just like, it just blew up on them immediately. Uh, they were already unlikable because of, uh, the, you know, the strike and Jerry Reinsdorf's role in it. And then they went one and seven, lost all these games and blowouts and walk-off losses and blown leads. And it's just, there's no reason for fans to really invest themselves in the team. And, you know, maybe this year the White Sox benefit from that. Maybe it's just, uh, this is the year where the twins plans go awry or the Indians can't respond or, you know, the wild card race isn't what it's shaped up to be. And the White Sox can get in that way. Uh, there are a lot of weird things that can happen when a season doesn't start the way it's supposed to. And especially with a short season to where if you start off with a bad 20 games, that, that just might completely change the way teams act the rest of the other 60 games. 
and teams might throw in the towel a lot quicker. And so wins might be, you know, I, I guess uh, early wins might make later wins easier to come by based on how much they've made the competition uh, afraid of what's to come or just have to uh, look ahead to 2021. So that's yeah, the other reason I'm writing about that. I'm hoping that's ultimately uh, the reason uh, uh, or the lessons we're able to apply going forward is that the White Sox just by being ready and being interesting and having a lot of talent uh, uh, are in a position to take advantage of other teams not starting as well just for whatever reason. And thanks to the pandemic and the delayed start of the season, there are a lot of reasons that could contribute to for whatever reason. Well, as in rec, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from David and David is asking, what are your thoughts on putting computer-generated fans and noises into the stadiums for the TV broadcast if or when baseball returns with no fans. On the one hand, it seems a bit disingenuous, but with everyone knowing the situation, would it make it more acceptable and more entertaining to watch than an empty stadium with hollow noises of the game? I think when it comes to... uh fans and noise i think i can separate those and say like fans i don't really see the purpose in having fans put in or uh, or likenesses mannequins whatever you want to call it uh, uh put into the stadium i th- i think we've seen enough baseball played with empty seats whether it's low minor leagues or whether it's rain delays or uh, as we saw in baltimore um we there's just been cases where um Games haven't been played in front of many, if any, fans. And we're watching in, in, in South Korea now. And you can crop baseball action close enough from the center field camera and you know, tracking ground balls and fly balls to where you don't really notice empty stands all that much. So I don't think there's really a whole purpose in investing a whole lot of technology and in, in such and in thought into putting fans in seats. I think maybe if uh, I, I would enjoy some maybe 108ers holograms in that corner uh, and maybe putting a, a likeness of the uh, M&M guy behind home plate. And that might give uh, uh, fans a little bit of familiarity they might like. But uh, otherwise, I don't see a whole purpose in that. I think uh, we can look past the empty stands. I think the ambient noise is another thing. Uh, I think in order to make the product a bit more... You know, orally interesting, uh, or orally, I should say, A-U-R-A-L-L-Y. Um, it seems like there would have to be some kind of noise going on in the background between pitches, between um, chatter, just, you know, for, for a couple reasons. One, in order to, I guess, give uh, fans something else to listen to besides player and manager and umpire chatter, which, uh, as we've seen with uh, some of the hot mic action that, uh, you know, some things might not want to be heard. So I think it's probably in the league's interest to, you know, have something going on just to distract fans and not have them hanging on everything uh, they can hear said between players and coaches and umpires. But also I think just if you're watching a game or if you're having it on the background while doing something else, I think you just want something to hook your ear while somebody's not talking or while something's not happening in order just to keep your interest and keep you from changing the channel and keep you from falling asleep. So I think, you know, there will be something put in just to have that hook in your ear to know that something's going on, even when nothing is theoretically going on, especially like if, you know, you have some slow working pitchers who might just normally slow down 
uh, how much is going on and you don't have fans to cut to or anything else to distract you visually, I think there probably will just have to be some hum of maybe just some crowd noise. I, I wouldn't want like the crowd noise to be triggered where somebody's on a soundboard, you know, sounding off like rancorous applause for yeah, home run or I wouldn't want that. I think I just right. want some kind of white noise in the background. Uh, the other thing I thought of was, uh, you know, thinking about uh, just background noise and how that was solved in the past, you know, before certain technologies were possible. I was thinking of, you know, 8-bit Nintendo games and uh, Nintendo Super Nintendo <laughs> and just thinking about like just the incessant music that they had and and realizing like probably we're past that now, especially like younger generations that didn't grow up with it, that don't know the joy or the annoyance of listening to the same minute of music over and over and over again. Uh, but I was thinking like, if you just had like a White Sox twins game going on with say the theme from baseball stars, RBI Baseball. Bases Loaded. Or my personal favorite, Ken Griffey Jr. on Super Nintendo. Like having that going on for an entire game. <laughs> like, like, a, like I'm, I'm picturing like three hours of just that. Uh, I think the Ken Griffey Jr. track could work the longest. But you know, I'm thinking like growing up, we played those games and we played them for hours. Right. Just having that music going on in the background. I think like a certain window of people, like say maybe 30 to 40 or early 40s might think oh this is fun and cool and the rest of the baseball watching public would have no idea why anybody <laughs> would want to do this yeah and they would get super annoyed right away yeah but the the, the ken griffey jr theme slapped sure i was always a fan of the frank thomas video game and and that theme music big herd baseball That, that's what I enjoyed as a kid, and that's what I would enjoy now because it just re remind me. And it would only work for White Sox games. So it would be interesting to see on how many White Sox fans remember the theme music from Big Herd Baseball. Would Frank Thomas get royalties? I hope so. Uh, he's in it. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I'm assuming yes. Would he make fewer new Genix commercials if he got paid for that music being used? <laughs> <laughs> if so everybody wins yeah there you go there you we go we solved it we have solved the frank thomas eugenics issue i could see teams if they have an organist play the organ during the game but it's gonna be one of those things that i've been also thinking about like how are beat reporters going to do their jobs uh for this upcoming season how the, how are the players going to handle this? Because even if it's a not well attended game, and or if the game if they're used to playing in front of sellout crowds, 
it is going to be a much different environment. And if you're playing the in-game sounds of the stadium, if you still have that guy or uh, woman that's playing the organ, like Nancy, right? If you brought back Miss Nancy for the White yeah, Sox. Lori Moreland, yeah. Yeah, she's playing the organ, okay? That may keep things as normal as possible because players do such a great job of trying to phase out the crowd while they're at the plate. But if you get rid of walk-up music and the, the organ and in-between pitches music and the clapping, like, is that going to is that going to impact the players? I'm just thinking about like how much more mental bandwidth players will have to devote to their nicotine withdrawals. Yeah. From not being um, able to spit. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I, I think this is going to be something we're going to learn. Like it, while it would still make it feel like a normal broadcast for fans, somebody is going to have to think, how can we make this as normal of an environment as possible for these players? Yeah. Yeah. And to, and to go back to like the 1995 talk, just like, you know, all the reasons why we could have unexpected seasons and, and, and excellent seasons and, and massive disappointments is this is another thing that factors into it. Just the, uh, yeah, the emotional components <laughs> that has never been part of a season. Yeah, that, that's another good point. Right. But David, it's an excellent question, and I'm so glad we got those 8-bit sounds, those sexy, sexy video game 8-bit <laughs> sounds into the podcast. So thank you so much for your question, David. And thank you to everyone that submitted questions this week for P.O. Socks. If you have a question or topic that you would like us to tackle on a future episode of the Socks Machine podcast. Again, follow us on Twitter. We are at Socks Machine. We do have a Facebook page at facebook.com slash Socks Machine that you can like our stuff, but you can also help support the site and the show by becoming a friend at patreon.com slash Socks Machine, where we give additional content on the podcast and writings for our Patreon supporters and really, really appreciate your guys' support uh, even through these tough times uh, to help us out at Sox Machine, and I hope that you are still finding it worthwhile to continue to support us. And hopefully, we'll have regular season baseball coming soon, so we get back to some type of normal operations. Uh, but again, thank you guys so much for your extended support at Patreon.com/SoxMachine. And that will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. If you just discovered the show, you can subscribe to the podcast via Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, and Audioboom.com slash Socks Machine. The Socks Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. And now, Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Check out our amazing offers on internet and learn about the latest breakthrough from Xfinity. Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. That's more than enough speed to power all your devices and then some. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible x gateway. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. 
legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history, relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.